This podcast may contain language and subject matter that some people could find offensive. Please do not listen to this podcast if easily offended. Otherwise, enjoy the show. And welcome to the Falling Star Wrestling Podcast. In the show today, we'll be running down and chatting about our most recent live show from Falling Star Wrestling. We were live and in colour at the Sutton St. James Village Hall, and there's lots to talk about. The biggest question on people's lips is, why Jack? Why? We'll get into that very soon. Hello, I'm your host for the show today. My name is Patrick Vincent Crown, but my mates call me PVC, so you can too. I'll be joined by fellow disaster artist Jimmy Starr, who'll be there to give his unfiltered thoughts and expert opinions on everything from this show. Just a touch of housekeeping before we crack on. If you missed this show, well, don't make the same mistake twice and come along to our next event, which is taking place on Saturday, August 12th at the Western Sports and Social Club. If George Rashwood doesn't float away while sitting on his stupid little inflatable toy and decides to show up to West Lynn, well, we're going to have a tag team title match. Tournament winners, the Disaster Artists, will face off against champions, The Sound. If Rashwood doesn't show up, the commissioner has stated that The Sound will have to relinquish their titles. Also, Jack Landers will address the Falling Star Wrestling audience after his actions at Sutton St. James. All that and more, Saturday, August 12th, door 6.30, showtime 7.30, tickets on the door. Then two weeks after that, Falling Star Wrestling makes their debut in Walsoken for Walsoken Warfare. All details for both shows can be found over on the Falling Star Wrestling Facebook and Instagram pages. It's at Falling Star Wrestling. But before we get ahead of ourselves a little too much, let's rewind back to last weekend and talk about our show from Sutton St. James. This past Saturday night, Falling Star Wrestling made their debut in Sutton, St. James. We had a great event performing in front of new fans and old fans. Six great matches and myself and Jimmy, the Disaster Ice, we're here today to combine together to give our thoughts, feelings and opinions on the Sutton, St. James show. Jimmy Starr, how are you and what did you think about Sutton, St. James, mate? I'm very good, thank you. I've got a bit of a sore knee. Jack's money in the match. We'll go through when, where, and how a little bit later. But other than that, I'm feeling pretty good, a little bit banged up, as you can imagine. But yeah, really happy with the show at Sutton St. James. Um, we filled the venue, which is the important thing. Plenty of new fans, plenty of amazing feedback online, Facebook, Instagram, all of our socials, really booming with some positive feedback. Sutton St. James definitely want us back. I'm very pleased with the response that we got there. Watching the show, we'll obviously we'll go for it match by match, but all in all, I think it was a pretty good event. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's always nice to go to a new venue. It's always nice to make a good impression because when we wrestled in front of a lot of the same fans, which is great because that means that people like our product, want to come back, want to see more. Repeat sales, always fantastic. But it's always great to go to a new venue and see new faces and new people and just get that feedback that, that just shows us that we're doing a great job. So we're very pleased with the turnout. Love the hall. We'll definitely be back. 
from the comments that the fans want us back there too. So that's great. I'm really pleased. Yeah, the Falling Star Wrestling expansion into Lincolnshire is going pretty well, isn't it? We did the show in Fosdyke. That was packed out. We went into Weston. That was great as well. And then in Sutton St. James, really nailing it there. So the expansion is working well, isn't it, Jim? It is, yeah. And hopefully our next stop soon will be Hull Beach. So we'll hopefully nail that there. I mean, the idea is to do what we've done in Kings Lynn in Lincolnshire, and that is build a territory of, of smaller venues and then have a bigger hall like we do with Linsport. Some of the more eagle-eyed, hardcore FSW fans have probably seen the teasers for our October Linsport event. So that's coming up soon. But what we'd ideally like is sometime early next year, maybe February, March time, is to start looking at some bigger halls in Lincolnshire and start pulling the fans from Weston and Fosdyke and Hull Beach and Sutton St. James and wherever we go and start pulling those fans into maybe a central location, maybe a Spalding or a Boston or somewhere like that, into a bigger venue. And that's the idea. People always say to me, Jimmy, why don't you expand into bigger halls straight away? Why are you doing the smaller halls? And it's like, well, we can go into a bigger hall and we can maybe half fill it with about 250 people. But the thing is, until you've got a proven product and people have seen what you can do, they tend not to travel too far away from their houses to see something that they don't really have too much of an idea about. If you go into these little villages, if you go into these small towns and you give them a good show, a good, decent show, and you charge them a fair price and they see that they're getting quality entertainment, then when there's a show 20 miles away in a bigger venue, they'll travel and you'll end up turning that 250 fans into sort of 500 fans straight away. So yeah, it's okay going into the bigger venue straight away, but unless you've got a proven product, I think sometimes it's a bit difficult to draw those big numbers. And that's what I've learned from promoting in Norfolk. And that's what I'm trying to take over at Lincolnshire. Start small, build big. That's just makes sense to me. And also these halls are fun. They're always cool halls to do. The fans are always really appreciative that you bring something of that quality and of that magnitude to their sort of little towns. And it's all not just Hull Beach, but we always get good feedback from these shows. So that's the plan. That's the plan of attack. All very exciting stuff. But Jimmy, we're here today to talk about the show from Sutton St. James. We had six matches. Shall we do our thing and go down the matches and tell people what happened? Let's go. Excellent stuff. So we opened up the show with match number one here at Sutton St. James. We had the Dark Wolf, Matt Walters versus Ollie Cole. We announced it on our social media challenge. We opened up the event with a rematch from West Lynn. And uh, this one goes out to the people that aren't aware. In case you're unaware, Ollie Cole was absolutely decimated by the Dark Wolf around four weeks ago in Outwell. And then two weeks later, Ollie Cole called out the Dark Wolf uh, Westlin show to try and earn Matt's respect. At Westlin, Matt delivered another beating to Ollie. So Ollie is still trying to get some retribution on the Dark Wolf by calling him out once more here at Sutton St. James. So first down to the ring is the Dark Wolf, Matt Waters. And I'm not sure I've ever seen the Dark Wolf so confident. Usually he's sort of arrogant and cocky and brash, but tonight he just seems extra sure about himself and his chances against Ollie and going on the track record why wouldn't he be Ollie then makes his way down to the ring being accompanied by his sing-along theme tune Falling Star Wrestling faithful fan Terry even gets in on the karaoke session as well really great stuff but 
all the fun and games are over as the Dark Wolf demands that Soundman cuts the stupid music. He then denigrates the audience by calling them ugly, disgusting and smelly, which I think is a bit harsh. He says that Ollie is a moron if he thinks that he can beat the Dark Wolf and Matt is looking forward to beating Ollie all around, and this is Matt's words, stupid little town. Matt then offers Ollie one final chance to leave before he beats him up, but Ollie will not give up that easy. Ollie then offers out his hand to Matt and says that Matt should shake his hand and wrestle him like a man. As Ollie gives the microphone back to Danny, our MC, Matt just slaps the taste out of Ollie's mouth, but Ollie knows these tricks and goads Matt into making a mistake, which he does. Ollie goes on the attack early, landing strikes and a swinging head scissor, and then the hurricanrana, but that's not enough to take Matt down. Ollie then lines up the lightning spin kick, but misses, and Matt smashes into the back and neck of Ollie, stunting any momentum Ollie was gaining there. Matt then surgically takes apart Ollie with chops and strikes, and just when you thought Ollie was down and out, he fires back with a few chops of his own, but it takes too long, and Walters goes after the eyes. A snapmare and a kick to the spine is not enough to keep Ollie down as he kicks out and the crowd begin to rally behind him. Ollie hits the ropes, but Matt just drop kicks Ollie's head off. But Ollie stays in the match, kicks out at two. Walters takes things down to the canvas with a chin lock and uh, the legs grapevined, trying to grind down Ollie Cole, stopping any fire and momentum. Eventually, Ollie gets the second win, ducks the line, ducks the back elbow, tries the crossbody, but is caught. Ollie Cole then floats over and rocks Walters with an enziguri, a forearm in the corner is followed by the lightning spin kick which rocks Dark Wolf but Matt kicks out before the count of three Ollie ascends to the second rope and nails a flying crossbody and falls into the pinfall but Matt still kicks out now the audience they are firmly behind Ollie Cole willing him to beat Matt Ollie uses this momentum to charge at Matt from the corner but he gets his head taken off with a vicious clothesline Matt then nails the double underhook knee buster followed by the head kick combo and this spells disaster for Ollie Cole as Matt hoists Ollie up onto his shoulders and crushes him down into the canvas with a devastating Death Valley driver. The Dark Wolf picks up the win in the opening contest. Ollie tried his best once again and he got in a little bit more offense this time but the result was still the same. However, a defeated Ollie Cole scrapes himself off the mat and offers the handout to Matt again but the Dark Wolf still does not recognize Ollie as a worthy competitor. I have a feeling that Ollie will not rest until he earns the respect of the Dark Wolf, Matt Walters. Now, Jimmy, I'll throw this over to you first. What did you reckon to this opening contest between Matt and Ollie? I thought it was great. The story is as old as the Rolling Hills, isn't it? You've got the wily veteran there and you've got the young up and comer and he just wants, he just wants respect. He's almost get, wanting respect more than he wants a victory. And it's a great story. It's easy to tell. The crowd can get behind it. They understand it. Like you said, the crowd love Ollie Cole. They're willing him to do his best. They're willing him to win. Matt's obviously in real life taken a shine to Ollie Cole's abilities. You can see that he's he's got a lot of potential. And with each match, Matt is teaching him. Matt is teaching him pace himself to sell, to work that crowd, to gain that sympathy. The match was... Obviously, a story-based match in a, in a venue that doesn't really know the story because the, a lot of the fans, seventy percent of them, were, were were new punters. In terms of the reaction it got on the night, 
probably should have got a little bit more reaction from the fans. But again, they weren't parlayed to the, to the story that was told at the last West Lynn show. Um, I thought it was a better match, you know, more stuff for Ollie to do, which he does well. I think if I was going to give Ollie a little bit of feedback from the, the, the match I watched, I didn't get to see it live on the night. But uh, from what I saw on camera, Ollie did very well. Just a few of us, the comebacks and stuff, he's still rushing. And I don't mean his gimmick is he rushes and hits the ropes and that sort of stuff because he's lightning Ollie Cole and he's meant to be fast with his moves. But I'm more sort of about talking about his strikes when the few strikes he gave Matt before Matt hit him with a drop kick and the few strikes he gave before Matt took him out with a clothesline. They're just really quick. Just slow him down. He's hurt. You're meant to be hurt. Really desperately throw those strikes in. Really put them in. Matt's a big fucking man. Matt's all man. If you're going to, in psychology-wise, if you're going to take a a man like Matt down, you need to really be taking him to task and laying those strikes in. So just a few little pickups there. But for how long Ollie's been wrestling, he is a very talented young man. Matt is taking him by the scruff of the neck and saying, right, let's do something with you and let's get you over. And the story is working, and I'm liking the matches. It was a good opener. The, the crowd that were there weren't privy to the story, but I still don't necessarily think that matters too much, aside from the fact that, that Matt had to win, so a heel had to go over first. It's a little bit of a little bit of a bummer in the first match. Having said that, they weren't a wrestling crowd, so to speak, so I don't think it really mattered to them. I think that they were annoyed that, that, that Matt went over, but... Obviously, I don't think Oli going over would have made them any crazier or better for the future matches. I just think that they were learning how to be a, a wrestling crowd that night. So the crowd were actually learning as well. They were taking a crash course in learning how to be uh, a, a wrestling crowd, which means you can make plenty of noise, go absolutely crazy and enjoy yourself. It was a shame that the match didn't get more reaction because it should have done. It was a very good match. Plenty of good stuff in it. Ollie's doing really well. Matt just comes across like a fucking killer anytime he does anything. Matt's got that that heel persona. Everything he does looks like he's trying to kill you. But I know for a fact he's obviously very safe. He knows what he's doing. He's all pro. He looks like he was annihilating Ollie. But a lot of that is down to Ollie as well. Like I said, his selling's a lot better. He took a clothesline towards the end of that match, which just literally looked like a Matt fucking just hit him and, and put him in a coma. Just totally, Ollie sold it so well, totally crumpled in a heap. All that shit's really good. Just take your time with your comebacks. Even if they're comebacks into a cutoff, just take your time with the strikes. Let the crowd absorb them. Really throw them in. Look like you. it's taking every fibre of your being to throw those strikes at Matt. Make sure it's looking like it's taking every bit of your heart, courage, soul to fucking hit him. And then when he cuts you off, you'll get more sympathy because the crowd will think, like, how the fuck is he going to get back from that? Just slow down a little bit and... I think you're there. You know, that match with Matt is going to be an exceptionally solid match. Just if Ollie just takes his time a little bit and slows down with the comebacks and the strikes and stuff like that. Real, really good opener, good shit, good solid stuff, and a good story in the right venue when Ollie, or if Ollie, can get that victory or get that handshake, I think fucking babies are going to be thrown in the air. I really do. I completely agree. I really liked this match and I liked how it built off of the previous couple of encounters that Ollie and Matt have had, like starting in Outwell, where Ollie basically got no offense, got swamped by Matt. Then at West Lynn, Ollie got a little more offense. But then again, here at Sutton St. James, Ollie stood a much better chance, which means he's learning and he's improving each and every time. And that's really good because it's showing character progression from Ollie. It's also showing heart, showing guts. He's getting up after taking an arse 
ass whooping as well. And he's not scared to look at Matt and demand that respect. And I like it. It's adding layers to Ollie's character. And I like when people add layers to their characters. The logical story would surely be something like you mentioned there. Ollie keeps getting knocked down, trying to gain that respect from Matt until he eventually either gets the handshake or the win. We don't know. I, I can't really see any of those things happening because Matt and his character are just so strong. Matt is just too angry, too tough, too stubborn to really show anyone any kind of respect. He's not really shown anyone respect for a long time in Falling Star Wrestling. So for somebody like Ollie, who's fresh-faced and new and hasn't gone through all that hardship and the struggles over the years that Matt's been through, I can't imagine Matt turning around and then giving him a handshake because that's not the Dark Wolf Matt Walters. And I can't see Ollie beating the Dark Wolf Matt Walters because he's just so hard but you never know there's always a glimmer of hope in there and that's what I think people are, are hanging on to and that's why I quite like that story you know um, having said all that about the story I think Ollie the person the wrestler the guy is really improving in each and every match and I think that's down to Matt as well really helping him out so you know that there's always a chance that he could get slipped over by Matt but that remains to be seen I think the regular fans probably got more out of this match more so than the new fans, purely because it's an ongoing story within Falling Star Wrestling. But I think the new fans would be able to tell what we were trying to tell or what Matt and Ollie were trying to tell Ollie. I think he does really well as that plucky underdog. He looks young. He's full of energy. Whereas you got the sort of opposite side there. You got Matt, who's just this sadistic bully, doesn't care about beating up boys and looks like he's having fun with it too. Doesn't mind denigrating the audience as well. I think Ollie, he's still got that explosive energy in his matches, which can sometimes translate into looking unsure of himself or not kind of holding himself like a pro would but I think that's fine at this stage in Ollie's career because he's still probably what a year or maybe less than a year into his wrestling journey and, and that's amazing and these types of matches that he's having with Matt are just what he needs to progress so I mean I don't really have anything else to really say about the match because it was very similar to what we've seen in Outwell what we've seen in Westlin the only thing is that each offering is getting better and better each time which is what it's supposed to do, isn't it, Jim? Most definitely, yeah. That's what you do, isn't it? When you learn, you go in there, you try something once, so you make a few mistakes and then you have a chat about it and then you iron out those mistakes, go back out there, do it again. It's learning on the job. Wrestling, we do learn a lot in training schools and in our training environment. And it's a hell of a lot to, to pick up and to learn in terms of techniques and falls and holes and all that sort of stuff. But you really learn on the job. And the way you learn is by wrestling people that are better than you, wrestling them a lot and wrestling them in front of people, engaging those people's reactions. That's the way you get better in this job. And Ollie is doing that. He's wrestling someone better than him on every show and he's learning and he's picking the stuff up and he's taking it to the next matches. And that's, that's good. A lot of the guys are doing that. You, you can't help get better when you're wrestling someone like Matt. Let's put it that way. I 100% agree because when I think back to my early career, Sean Simmons back in the day, generic babyface number one, black trunks, kick pads, black hair, generic music. And I was going up against the likes of Matt and just seeing how he puts his matches together, when to go, when to stop, when to really push forward, the strikes, the chops and things like that, and just how to sell like Matt is a font of knowledge. And I think he does himself a disservice because sometimes he's a little bit sort of like, 
unapproachable, but that's the way that Matt is. Like, I think you're the opposite to Matt. You always have people approach you and you always give them feedback. I think Matt's feedback is very useful because he doesn't mind going in there and really pinpointing those small things where I think you are more like character and story. But Matt can tell you like where you put a foot wrong or a toe wrong or turned in the wrong direction or you went slow at this this point where you're supposed to go fast or you're fast at this point when you're supposed to go slow. And that kind of combination between you and Matt as head coaches at Falling Star Wrestling Academy, I think is just is priceless. Well, I hope so. Yeah, you're right. If you come into me for technique, I'm probably the wrong guy. I know how it should go, but I can't show you. Whereas Matt can. But if you come into me to learn how to tell a story, then I'm probably the man to ask. You're right. And then obviously with the sort of the guys like yourself and Furio and Jack and all that lot who are, who are actively out there doing it, still hungry to a certain extent. So a lot of you are out there doing other shows and still in really immersed in the business. So there's a lot to learn from you guys as well. And then get people like Johnny in, Johnny Storm and other guest trainers and Danny Collins or whatever. There's just so much knowledge in Fallen Star Wrestling. But from any aspect of the business you want to learn, there's someone there who's an expert at it. There's always someone to turn to when you need a little bit of knowledge. For years, it was me and Matt. And I think you're right. That was why work works quite well, because if I wasn't too sure on something, then Matt would be. And, and if you wrestled me, you'd learn one thing. If you wrestled, wrestled Matt, you'd learn the other. So yeah, he is very hard on himself more than anyone, but he'll, he will sit there and chat to you and go, yeah, I can put your foot there and stand here and speed up here and slow down here and da-da-da here and da-da-da there. He'll get to the nitty-gritty and the details of how to really structure your match and get those moves right and get the best effect from stuff. So yeah, he's he's definitely very technique orientated. I mean, when you watch his matches, the shit looks impeccable. So he definitely knows what he's doing on that front. He certainly does. And although Ollie Cole, after each encounter, is looking battered and bruised and disheveled, he doesn't know how good he's got it being in there with a teacher like the Dark Wolf, Matt Walters. But I'm sure we could sit around and talk all day about Matt should we talk about the next match, Jim, instead? Let's go. Cool, cool, cool. So Danny Fear introduces the Wakefield Wrestling Empire to the ring for the next segment. Down come the team consisting of Sean Stone, Robbie Lewis, and the leader, Samuel Bloody Wakefield. Wakefield grabs the stick and makes his announcement. He says that he's been contemplating things in his mansion back in Essex and reckons that the WWE should go straight and be good guys. No more cheating, no more being dastardly. He says, winners never cheat and cheaters never win. And I thought this was very odd from the Empire there. And I'm not sure anyone in the audience really bought that one. Danny says that he trusts that Wakefield is saying what he's saying is true and offers out a challenge to the Empire and then welcomes down his tag team partner, Toby Lyons, for a tag team match. So we've got Wakefield's Wrestling Empire consisting of Stone and Lewis versus the BCB Lions and Fear. Off come Danny's trousers and we're ready for tag team action. Will Wakefield keep his boys in check and keep them from cheating and play it straight? Well... We're about to find out. All four men shake hands and it seems fair to start. Robbie and Toby starts things off. The bell rings and the pair lock up and Robbie overpowers Toby in the corner and Wakefield on the outside tells Robbie to make a clean break. 
so far so good. Again, Robbie takes Toby to the ropes, looking, looking like he might take advantage of the size difference. But Samuel again hops up on the apron to tell Robbie that they're playing by the rules and he should break the hold as Toby is on the ropes. Robbie doesn't seem to like his manager's tactics and has a word. So Toby quickly grabs the wrist lock to try and take control of things. This doesn't last long, though, as Robbie just throws Toby across the ring from one side to the other. Toby crawls to his corner and tags in Danny. Stone enters for the Empire. Stone grabs the arm, winds up the wrist. With a little assistance from the referee, Danny spins out, does a backflip, and manages to grab hold of the wrist of Sean Stone. Danny then goes from corner to corner, springs from the second and over Stone, who is following in. Then Danny hops up once more and lands a second rope jumping attack. Not quite sure what that was, but it was effective as it takes Stone down to the mat. This causes Stone to roll out of the ring and have a consultation with his manager and his tag team partner on the outside. Stone returns in and is met with a drop toe hold and a drop kick to the head. Danny then leaps off the top rope with a splash and the pinfall. One, two, Sean Stone kicks out, but in doing so, accidentally, and that's in air quotes there, accidentally hits Danny in the balls with the arm that he was kicking out with. Of course, Sean Stone is pleading and playing this off as a mistake. Wakefield is reasoning with the referee on the outside, but you know what? I think we all know what's going on here. Danny, he's still writhing on the floor, holding his little plums. Lewis comes into the fray and works over Fear in the corner. WWE make constant tags in and out, working over the shoulder of Danny Fear. A double suplex by the Empire isn't enough to keep Danny down. Stone then attempts a suplex by himself, but it's blocked and Danny wriggles out out of the way and eventually hits the Stone Cold Stunner on Stone and this creates space for the hot tag. Toby is chomping at the bit to get into this match. He does and takes down Stone with a few clotheslines. Then the BCB perform a double clothesline and Stone goes down like a sack of spuds. Then the pair of Stone and Fear both have the same idea and both go for the clothesline and both men hit the ground together. In comes Robbie Lewis and he just mullers Toby with a clothesline of his own. Lewis then kicks the bottom rope and exclaims Claims, I'm done, goes for the nightmare, but Toby slips out of the way, then hits the ropes. Uh, and while the referee is checking on Robbie Samuel, bloody Wakefield lumps Toby across the back with the briefcase and Toby goes down. We all saw it coming, but I'm surprised Wakefield lasted this long. Robbie picks up the carcass of Lions and delivers a world's strongest slam and picks up the win for the Empire and I thought this was not a bad little offering from the four trainees. It's good to see these guys get on the bigger Falling Star Wrestling shows to show what they can really do in front of a bigger audience and stuff like that and I really like the story of Wakefield and his crew apparently quote unquote going straight in this match. I mean you just knew that something was going to happen but I think the timing of that briefcase shot was super and it was the only thing I thought that really needed to be nailed in this match. And I thought they did that great. The promo really set things up and the payoff with the cheating was all that this match was about. So on that front, great stuff. Like for feedback on the match, I thought there was quite a few sort of awkward and, and wafty looking bumps from both teams. A lot of rushing in some places and a bit of an injection of pace needed in other areas. There was a second kind of hot tag double down. I thought that was a little unnecessary, especially after it came after the previous one. But I get why it was done and it made sense. But I just thought it slowed the pace down a little bit where they could have injected more pace into the match and then led up to that bit with Robbie and then the brief 
case shot. Um, but nonetheless, I, re I really like Danny's kind of little evasive moves. I thought they worked for Danny's character. He is smaller. He's a little slippery guy. He's trying his best to survive. He did that second rope move. I didn't know what he was going for. Looked like maybe a crossbody that never really got full round the right way, or it was a jumping back elbow or a jumping whatever, just jumping in general direction of the opponent and hoping for the best. I don't know, but whatever it did, it looked kind of cool because Danny is this sort of haphazard kind of guy. And on the flip side, I think I want to see a bit more tag team action from the Empire. Like I'm, I'm starting to see them less and less as like a cohesive tag and more like two singles kind of put together by Wakefield. And that's fine if that's what they want to do. But if they want to be a fully fledged tag team, I think I need to see a little bit more working together, maybe a few more double teams. And and I know the story around this was they're going straight so they couldn't do the, the moody tag stuff with the cheating and stuff like that. So maybe next time there'll be a fully cohesive tag team and I'll eat my words. On the plus side, I thought Samuel nailed it again with this promo. And I don't know who came up with the story and the creative for this match, but I thought it really added something more than just a conventional tag team match between a heel and babyface team. So... Good job, guys. A little bit to improve on. Most of all, the story was there and I really enjoyed it. Jimmy Starr, what did you think to this match, mate? I think you probably hit the nail on the head there. Technically, we can delve into the details in a second, but yeah, like you say, the overarching story was good. Sam's idea, not we've, we've, me and him have fleshed the idea out a little bit and you'll see what's going to come in, in future shows and future matches. But the idea was his suggestion. It gives the team a little bit of an extra dimension, gives them something to chill on going forward and gives the fans something to enjoy. It's quite, it's quite a cool little story. But is he genuinely trying to go straight? Is it just a bit of muscle memory? Why he ended up cheating? Did he mean to? Did he not? Like, what's the score? Can he help himself? Can he not? Is he desperately trying? Is he like an addict trying to get off the drugs? Oh, I'm trying my hardest, but I slip up. Please forgive me, blah, blah, blah. What's, what, what is the deal behind that cheating? And I'm sure we'll hear a few explanations and odds and sods and a few other promos or whatever. But no, that, that was the thing that I was really impressed with this match was, like you say, four guys who aren't that experienced. It could have gone very wrong. Obviously, the positioning of the match was to protect, potentially protect that between hopefully two good matches. It wouldn't have been the end of the world if that would have gone totally wrong, but it didn't. It had its own story, its own life, its own ideas, some good stuff in there. I think Danny was going for like a springboard crossbody thing off because and the only reason I know that is because they were practicing that spot with Johnny earlier on. I think I know what they were trying to go for. We all slip off the ropes. We all make mistakes. That doesn't matter. But it was a nifty little spot up until that point and something that I think that, that Danny should continue to use because for all his comedy and all his pissing about, Danny's actually a pretty good little athlete. Use these things. Use these little evasive things, these little amusing, evasive cool little nippy sort of uh, spots and techniques to to get over to get himself over and to get the team over um toby's got a little bit of catching up to do but he he, he did his bit pretty well in, the, in this match he moved okay his intensity was a little bit off they're a comedy tag team and it's i suppose it's still trying to find their identity and there was a lot of story in this match too so it was good. Technically, I think the biggest thing I would say is echoing what you said with the end. Like they had a hot tag where Toby came in, boom, and then they tagged Danny out pretty much straight away, even though he's had his ass kicked. Doesn't really make sense to me psychologically. They should have kept Toby in, done a lot longer sort of hot tag, and then maybe worked a way to get Danny in quickly in at the end and then just gone to the finish, like or kept Toby in and 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 done the dodgy finish that way. 
I just think that the that, that Toby came in a couple of three close lines and then that was it. Tag Danny back in, who's just had his ass kicked. Why would you tag him back in? He's hurt. That to me is just one of those things. Just think about stuff like that. The match was pretty good. The finish was nailed nicely. Wakefield's a very good actor in terms of his facials and stuff like that. It's and and so Sean and Rob Robbie did his bit pretty well. I can see an improvement in everyone in that match. I like the story. I like the promo. They worked hard in putting that together. They tried to keep it simple. They tried to not overcomplicate it, which was hugely important. But they also tried to put a cool little new different storyline in there, which I think has got some mileage. It doesn't just have to be a one-stop deal. Samuel can flesh that out, that storyline of them trying to go straight. And we're going to be left on tender hooks wondering, are they actually trying to go straight? Or are they just saying that to lead people into a full sense of security so that the ref isn't as eagle-eyed as he should be or their opponents aren't as sharp as they should be um, because they think that the the team are, are, are trying to play by the rules. So we shall see as we go down the line. You know, that's the thing with Fallen Star Wrestling, variety stories, keeping people entertained. And this is just another cool little story and a little angle, which I think could work well and has got some pretty fun, cool, funny promos that can be added to it. Yeah, as much as Samuel Bloody Wakefield's voice and general demeanour and shorts and face and everything just annoys me, I think he's a great addition to the Falling Star Wrestling roster and especially for those two, Sean Stone and Robbie Lewis. Like, he is a great full guy for those two and he's doing wonders on the outside. I think he's really coming into his own as a manager. His promos are getting better. He seems to... I don't know, he seems to have a little bit more confidence about him. And I guess that's just repetition, repetition, knowing what he's doing, knowing what he's going to say. I know he does like to pre-plan his promos a lot beforehand, but I think he's now getting to that stage where if somebody does say something to him and it takes him off course a little bit, he can put in his little comment, but then he can get right back on course again. I think that's a really difficult thing to do, especially as a heel, because you've got to be really quick-witted to be that kind of mouthy, cocky heel, haven't you? And I think he's doing really, really well. And he's doing wonders for that team because we're seeing the stock rise of Sean Stone and Robbie Lewis. And these guys, they're building. They used to just be kind of the trainee guys that would only feature on a West Lynn show. But now they're having prominent positions on shows like Sutton St. James and Outwell. And, and shows like this. The progression you can see across the board is great. And then again with the BCB as well, they're just progressing. They're getting better. They're starting to hone their characters. I think there's definitely still some work to be done with those guys. But because they've got character, because they've got likability, because they can sell, because they can come up with new ideas that not everybody else is doing, that they're in a really unique position, aren't they? Definitely. And especially Danny, because... I think he's got real potential as an athlete. He can do some really cool stuff. When you see him in training, he can pretty much do anything. Like as an athlete, I think people would be surprised to realize how good he is. But not only is he a good athlete, he's got a lot of character. Plus he MCs the shows, you know, so we all know that he can talk and he's got a lot of upsides to him. He's got a hell of a lot of upsides to him. And I think that as time goes on, it'll really be a, a, a good adage to the falling star wrestling roster and he already is without those shows we wouldn't have an mc and plus he fills a spot up for wrestling and he loves wrestling he turns up to training he works hard he's very instrumental on the lighting side and so is his father they put a hell of a lot of work into falling star wrestling and i'm really appreciative of that i'm really appreciative of the amount of effort 
that he puts into FSW, not just as a wrestler. Like I said, he's a talented little man, talented little athlete, but also the emceeing, the lighting, the music, all that sort of shit. Hugely important. And the same with Sean as well. To be fair, the man, and the same with Robbie and Toby. These guys, they're working on the lighting, they're working on getting posters out, they're working on ideas to create more revenue for Falling Star Wrestling. We all want to believe that the Empire are the world's biggest bastards and suspend your disbelief at shows and, and shout at them as much as you like because that's what the point is of wrestling. But they're also working really hard in, in the background, like a lot of you guys are and have in the past and continue to do. They're really on board with Falling Star Wrestling. They really want it to succeed. And they're all working really hard, not just at the wrestling side of it, but on the actual production side of it and and well, pretty much the business side of it to keep the uh, FSW af- afloat because they know that I can't do it on my own and that I can't thank all of them enough. And I, I, I don't mean to miss people's names out here because I don't want to offend anyone. And we're obviously talking about the people in the match. So I've just mentioned specifically the people in the match because they all worked very hard on that night and have done on for a while now in, in the actual involvement of the show side of things. They're, they're, they're taking the ball by the horns and they're really doing a wonderful job in making the shows happen and making sure people turn up. And we're all working hard. We all are. We always have done. But it's nice to see that this new generation of guys taking up that mantle as well. And so that that's hugely important to me. And I just wanted to make sure that I got that out there. Yeah, man, it's all great stuff. And everybody in Falling Star Wrestling wears multiple hats, even those guys, even the trainees, even the people that aren't at the sort of upper echelon of Falling Star Wrestling. They're still down there working hard. They're still going around, giving out posters, coming up with ideas, helping you out, coming to training. And they're just putting in like 100% effort. You can't really ask for more than that, can you? No, definitely not. No, and that's what's kept Falling Star Wrestling alive since 2011. It's not just me. I put a lot of effort in and I work my ass off to bring you the best shows I possibly can. And obviously I'm booking the venues and I'm booking the cards and, and me and Matt are putting together things like that. But in terms of getting people through the door, there's so many jobs that I just cannot do on my own. And the, the, you guys have always had to help. Falling Star Wrestling has always been a family, a community of people who, who love wrestling, who love Falling Star and who love performing. But we all know that we can't just leave it to one person. It's got to be a team effort. And it's nice to the, the the more people we get like that coming through the academy who can offer their skills and say, well, I'm good at this. I've got this bit of equipment. I've got some time on my hands to do this, that and the other. I'm happy to MC. I'm happy to ref. I'm happy to post it. I'm happy to flyer. I'm happy to do whatever. I'm happy to get there earlier and do the ring, all that sort of shit. We need that. We desperately need that. And that's why we've been going now for 12 years. And that is because of the efforts of all of you, of everyone, not just me. And that's, I suppose, this match is, is a good a time to mention that as any, because these four guys help uh, have really flung themselves into not just the wrestling, but the business. And I can't thank them all enough. All right. Before we get too into the weeds, Jimmy, shall we get back on track and talk about the next match, mate? By all means, yes. 
Okie dokie. So next, a highly anticipated affair kicks off here in Sutton St. James as the wonder kid Johnny Storm comes down to the ring. His opponent for the evening is none other than the spring-heeled Jack Landers. These two are familiar with one another as they've faced at some of Falling Star Wrestling's biggest shows, even for the Limitless title at one stage. Now in the ring, Landers and Storm shake hands before the match as the audience chant, both these guys, the pair circle and Storm takes the arm early on. Landers, no slouch, rolls through. Head nip, games the arm of Johnny Storm. Storm says no and does a headstand of his own and floats perfectly into the wrist lock counter. Beautiful stuff. Landers spins out and takes control back once more. Storm hits the corner up to the second and floats over with a lucha arm drag taking Landers down. Jack takes down Johnny this time with a tackle. Sleep, leap, roll through, sweep the leg, cover, sweep the leg, cover. Stalemate. Good stuff here. Both men hit the ropes. Double tackle, double bump, double nick up. <laughs> double bump, double nip up. The timing here was incredible. Great stuff by Jack and Johnny here. Jack with the schoolboy. The double leap, the, dro uh, the drop kick takes Storm down. Landers is then sent to the outside but hangs on. He sweeps the leg and then re-enters the ring with a springboard rolling senton move. Smooth as butter. Jack goes for the repeated pinfall. But on the third attempt, gets caught slouching as Johnny kips up and kicks Jack in the back of the head. Storm then lands the running bulldog and gains control. Storm lands a snap powerbomb and then calls for the finish. Jack reverses that and then the pair roll back and forth trying to get the pin back and forth until they both relent and have the same idea again. Double clothesline. Both men hit the deck. Jack immediately then goes for the pump handle driver, his finisher, but Johnny Storm floats over. Johnny then calls for the wonderful... Johnny then calls for the Wonder World, but Jack lands the back elbow. Jack then ducks the line and lands the handspring stunner, rocking Johnny Storm, but not quite getting that pinfall there. Jack tries the moonsault. Storm moves out of the way, and Jack eats a massive super kick. Johnny Storm then lands his moonsault, but Jack just about kicks out before the three count. As Storm comes in to claim Jack, Landers wraps up Johnny Storm in a small package, but that's not enough. Landers then floats over and seamlessly gets Johnny into the pump handle driver, nails it, and wins the match. Awesome stuff. Jack then grabs the microphone and puts Johnny Storm over hard. He thanks Johnny for being here tonight. Storm then grabs the microphone and puts Jack over too. And what can you really say about a match from these two guys? It's it's hard to say anything bad about it, and rightfully so. These two work together so seamlessly, and it really showed that Jack can hang on the same level as somebody like a Johnny Storm. And I'd really love to see what this pair could do on like a really big main event, big show. I'm thinking something along the lines of like Johnny Storm versus Jody Fleisch, where they just go and hang it all out on the line. Like, I think Jack could hang at a top level. He's got gas in the tank to do it. He's definitely got the athletic ability to back it up. He's got the rapport with Johnny Storm to pull out those intricately timed moves because they just proved it here. Just how smooth and well-timed everything was. And you, you just know you're always going to get a good showing with Johnny Storm. He never disappoints. And I think the crowd always know that they're going to get their money's worth when Johnny rolls into town. It's great. The boys got in there. They didn't mess around. 
they went in there to show what they can do. And that was apparent from the start right to the end. And there wasn't really one point where you could say that Johnny was in control or vice versa. It was a really compelling back and forth match, which I think really suited where it was on the card. It suited both Jack and Johnny Styles and their characters and the pace and the storytelling ability was great too. And there was only really one story being told. It wasn't quite as intricate as the previous stories that were told in the previous two matches, but this was just pure competition. And I think that's perfect for this type of match because you've got current wrestling legend in Johnny Storm going up against up and coming wrestling star for the future, going tit for tat, like for like, back and forward. It was just cool. And another thing, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. I also really liked that Jack was smart knowing that he was going to work two matches and he didn't saturate all of his moveset because you'll notice later on, he didn't do hardly any of the same moves in either of the matches. And I think that's just so smart and really shows the depth of Jack's moveset and psychology of how he kind of plans and goes into his matches. Because I don't know if that was me, I'd have been pulling out all the same moves for both matches. But I guess that really speaks volumes about the talent between Jack and I, really, doesn't it? Jimmy, what did you think to this match? I'd love to hear what you were going to say about this one. A lot of people say that double baby face doesn't work. And I think to a certain extent, that's right. When you've got two baby faces that no one really knows or cares about. When you've got two baby faces that people love, Johnny Storm, Jack Landers, people absolutely love them, especially the guys who have been following Falling Star Wrestling, British wrestling for a while. They know who both the guys are. They love them. They know they're talented and they know they're going to see an amazing match. I watched the match through the curtain. I wanted to see it. And when I saw Jack just standing on the second rope there as he came out doing his entrance, I thought, fuck, this guy should be in the WWE. You know, this guy should be in Japan. He's good enough. He looks amazing. He's coming up to his prime. He is a superstar and he looks like one too. And even Johnny said after the match, he sent me a message and Johnny's always very kind and exceptionally respectful. And he always sends you a message afterwards, thanking you for the booking. And you're just saying some nice things about the show and always gives a bit of feedback, but he couldn't have heaped any more praise on Jack. He just couldn't have heaped any more praise. He he said that guy is going to be, a fucking star and if he isn't there's something wrong and i think that's what that match showed me more than anything i mean of course johnny's amazing and the stuff they did the, the spots were just faultless they told the right story they did the right stuff they were smart the everything that cool it, it's one of those things where as a wrestler you you're watching it and you know that what you're seeing but as a fan when you watch it i think some that match was a prime example of I think the fans think that they saw more than they actually did. Everything was incredibly safe. Johnny's a full-time worker. He's got 30 years worth of wrestling on his body. He doesn't want to be hurting himself. And the trust that he put in Jack in that match was something that he doesn't do for everyone. So he obviously can see Jack's talent. We all can. You'd be blind not to. The guy's fucking a genius in there. But to get that kind of endorsement off of someone like Johnny Storm, who's been in the ring with the best in the world... And not just the best in the world now, but the best in the world over the past 30 years, Um, you know, to get that kind of endorsement from him says something. And I hope that I hope he said those words to Jack rather than said them to me, just said them to me because I haven't had a chance to talk to Jack yet about it. But he, he couldn't put Jack over enough. And this match, regardless of whether it was the best possible match that these two could put together, 
No, it probably wasn't, but it wasn't the right venue for it as well. It wasn't the right time on the show for it. And Jack had to work a little bit later too. For the, those two to go out there and absolutely bust out everything they knew would have been just totally ridiculous and totally pointless. But for them to go out there and have a competitive, fairly short, but not too short, they, they, even the timing of the match was perfect. Plenty of action, no real stopping gaps, no rest holds, no nothing. Just go out there and just have a fucking competitive wrestling match, which two athletes of that caliber can pull off. You know, really good, really special. Nice moment for me to watch that because I still remember Jack as a 10-year-old boy walking into that school with hardly any confidence. And I'm looking at him now and I'm thinking, shit, man, like, it's a, it's a, just a different human, just a totally different human. You know, he was a boy then and he's a man now, but it's just fucking incredible. People like Johnny Storm endorsing him the way he did. Jack's just got the world at his feet. And I hope he realizes that. I hope he takes that information in a smart way and just uses it to to push himself to wherever he wants to get to because he has the tools. I looked at him and I just thought, fuck. I think I even said to Matt, like, Jack is just fucking head and shoulders. He's just head and shoulders. He's amazing. I'm gushing over his Jack. I just think he's fucking got it all, you know? Definitely. And it's one of those things where you can look at a person and go, yes, that person looks like a wrestler, but they also still have to act like a wrestler and think like a worker and be able to pull off all those different things. But if you think about Jack Landers, he ticks each and every box like he's tried incredibly hard over the last couple of years to gain some mass and some muscle and he looks good he's got the benefit of being six foot plus so you know he towers over a lot of the sort of smaller indie guys but then he's got a bit of bulk about him a bit of muscle but then on the athletic side like the things that he can do for that size and just how kind of courageous he does with those 450s, the moonsaults, the crazy Phoenix splashes that he's managed to pull out at Linsport and things like that, the dives that he does, and then just the way that he works so smartly. He's not just, I've got all these moves and I want to get them in as quick as possible and slap the leg and indie spot, indie rific, blah, blah, blah. He's like psychology 101. And thankfully, he started off in the Falling Star Wrestling training academy because that's something that you drill into people's minds from day one isn't it Jimmy you go psychology 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 but obviously adding in the basics and how to wrestle how to run the ropes and stuff like that but you're doing a move why are you doing a move like you're doing a spot why is this spot relevant does it go here should it go later does this need to be faster does it need to be slower and Jack just instantly knows that and I don't think he has much trouble coming up with innovative spots he doesn't have much trouble coming up with cool spots for matches and I think he could easily go out there without any planning, any preparation and go against somebody of the likes of Tommy or Callie or Furio or me or you and just be able to pull a match out of the bag. And especially Johnny Storm, because he's got so much experience. Like, I don't know how much they planned in that match, but I bet they could have just met in the back, shook hands and gone. I'll see you out there in five minutes and just had a blinder of a match because they're so smart and they work together so seamlessly that... Yeah, when when I think about Jack, I just <laughs> I think about my wasted youth and my wasted potential and, and just want to fuel into Jack Landers and be like, don't you waste this kid. I, you need to be up there one day when I'm watching WWE at WrestleMania and you're the headline act. I want to be like, I know that guy, right? That's the feeling I get from Jack Landers. Definitely. And we've got some great wrestlers in Fallen Star Wrestling. We've got some great workers. We've got some great acts. We've got some great talents. And there's guys there that I feel that should be out and about earning a decent wedge and making a good career for themselves. But 
Jack Landers, I look at him and I think star. And what you were talking about earlier on, you know, you think about the good work where he can do the moves, he can tell the story, he can do this. Regardless of all that, yeah, Jack could have a match with a broom. He could do British style, he could do Lucha Libre, he can do Japanese, he can do American, he can do whatever style he want. He could wrestle me, he could wrestle you, he could wrestle next door's fucking cat. But when I look at him standing there on that second rope looking out, I thought, star, fucking star. And that's the aura he's got about him. And that's why I think he's special, because I do genuinely think that not just me, but other people who are quite influential, who pick people for the big leagues, could look at him and think the same thing. Do you know what I mean? I've got an eye for this shit, and he does look like a star to me. All right, Jimmy, we need to mop up the floor of all this Jack Landers adoration. Shall we move on to the next yeah, match, mate? Jack, Jack <laughs> Jeers, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Alrighty, so we went into the interval. We needed a break after Jack Landers versus Johnny Storm. When we came back from the interval, Danny welcomes us into the second half and lays down the law for the next match, which is a no disqualification match, which means anything goes. First to come down to the ring is the leader of the NLP, Mitch Basher, and he is flanked by his first commander, Crowley. Mitch Basher introduces himself to the fans at Sutton St. James. He breaks a few eardrums in the process. Basher says that the no DQ match is right up his street, so why doesn't Jimmy come down and answer the challenge? Out comes Jimmy Starr, joined, of course, by me, PVC. Jim grabs the stick and proclaims that we're here to see a fight and ask the audience if they want to see chairs, Sticks, ladders, the audience exclaim, yes. Basher starts things off by offering Jimmy a chair. Of course, Basher isn't going into this match unarmed as he still has hold of his trusty baseball bat that has seen him very well over the past couple of years. Basher goes in for the big home run, but Jimmy blocks with the chair. Basher drops the bat and Jimmy crashes the chair into the belly, then over the back of Basher. The action then spills to the outside and more weapons are brought into the fold. A crutch is smashed and bent over Basher's back as Jimmy brings out more and more toys. There's sticks and all such weaponry. A line of children then take turns in slapping Mitch Basher across the chest. Great stuff. Mitch's head is then rammed into the ring post. Basher is rolled into the ring and Jimmy follows. The ladder is perched in the corner and Mitch Basher reverses the Irish whip and Jimmy goes back first into the ladder. That was what Basher needed to turn the tides in this match because early on it was all Jimmy Starr. Basher lays down a chair on the small of Jimmy Starr's back and then wails down with the baseball bat causing Jimmy to cry and wince in pain. A set of chairs are then set up in the middle of the ring and the ladder is laid across them forming a table. Mitch Basher tries for the suplex, but Starr responds with a gut punch and then Basher comes in for the kill. Basher's ribs are then smashed across the makeshift table with a flapjack. The ladder is then positioned between Basher's bollocks and Jimmy takes a swing with a chair into the ladder, forcing the ladder further into Basher's nether region. As Jim is thinking about ending things, he sets up the makeshift table once again goes for the star KO, the cutter, but Basher slips out and lands the sister Abigail onto the ladder that's laid across the chair. Surely it's all over now. One, two, no, somehow Jimmy kicks out. Basher, who is in full control, sets up the ladder once again in the corner and then grabs the chair to finish off Jimmy Star by caving in his skull. Luckily, Jimmy has the brains to duck and then lands a massive spear on Mitch Basher, but unfortunately, that's not enough to keep Mitch Basher down 
down. Basher is set up against the ladder in the corner. Jimmy Starr charges in for the kill, but Basher is one step ahead and hoists in the sister Abigail and throws Jimmy backwards into the ladder face first. And that was all she wrote for Jimmy Starr. Mitch Basher wins this no DQ match. The NLP celebrate their victory, but it's not over yet. I come down to check on my good buddy Jimmy Starr, who appears to be knocked out in the middle of the ring. And as soon as I know you're back around with us, I get you out of the ring and then offer Crowley out for a fight. But we'll get into this match in just a bit. But first, Jimmy, you were in this match. Tell us about it, mate. What did you think? Again, variety. In terms of actually going to be honest, like talking about it, honestly, it's variety and, and trying to give the crowd a little bit of everything. They've seen the heel and baby face. They've seen double baby face. They've seen athleticism. They've seen moonsaults. They've seen comedy. They've seen wrist locks, fucking waist locks. But they haven't seen anyone get hit in the bollocks with a ladder and a chair. They haven't seen anyone get fucking twatted in the gut with a kendo stick. They haven't seen anyone get drinks fat in their face. They haven't seen anyone get hit over the fucking uh, back with a baseball bat and a chair. You know, if you're going to look at the match, it I think it was fine. It wasn't my best match ever. It wasn't Mitch's best match ever, but we know what we're doing. We're trying to work the crowd. We're trying to get him into it. We're trying to open the the first half with something a little bit, little bit more explosive. It's it's and also again, you got to try and work these things smart. We're using chairs. We're using real chairs. We're using real ladders. We're using real sticks. We're using real crutches. We, we've got very dangerous instruments in there. And believe it or not, neither of us want to get killed. So we've got to plan the match smart. Again, make people think that they've seen more than they've actually seen. Give them a little bit of what they want. I think we did okay. I mean, I weren't willing to give the crowd any more of my body than that. I don't think Mitch was either. And it flowed quite nice into your little bit. I thought it was all right. I don't like to review my matches very much. I think Mitch is always a pleasure to work with. His character is exceptionally um, well-crafted now. He knows exactly what he's doing I know what I'm doing. It was just a brawl. It was just a fight. And that was what we built it as. That was what we said it was going to be. And that was what we delivered on. And we did it without killing each other for in for real. And, and I think we added a little bit of drama into it. It was what it was. Yeah, I think like hardcore and no DQ matches can sometimes sit either side of like the violent scale. Sometimes they can just be too much for a family show and not really go anywhere other than just violence and people hitting each other with weapons. Whereas sometimes on the flip side, they can be really quite disappointing and not really feature any weapons or any innovation. I thought like this match sat nicely somewhere between the two of those ones. I thought it was a perfectly good kind of family friendly, no DQ match, you know, weapons and gimmicks were the focus of the match from the get go. You established that straight away when you were dueling with the baseball bats and the chairs and stuff like that. There were some bits and bobs with the ladder. And I think that was enough to satiate the fans that like things a little bit more hardcore, but you're not going to alienate the audience because we did have a lot of new fans there at Sun St. James. There was a, a wide variety of people you had people on the younger end of the scale you had the families and then you had the older generation there as well they're probably not gonna want to come to their local village hall and see two dudes just 
brutalise each other and blood and guts and thumbtacks and barbed wire. They just think they're putting on a family-friendly kind of hardcore match and that's what I think you guys did. Everything looked safe as houses. From my perspective, nothing seemed to go wrong, which I think is always the point of these types of matches when you've got things like ladders and chairs that don't really play safe because sometimes you can put a ladder in the corner, you hit the ropes, the ladder comes flying out, it can hit anyone, it can hit you on the back of the head, it can hit you in the knees and it can go a little bit rough and chairs don't like to play ball either. So everything seemed to go well and I really liked the couple of moves that were done across the ladder that was laid across the chairs. I thought that was cool. I thought the flapjack looked really brutal, made a really good noise and I think that really helps as well for those hardcore matches and again like the Sutton St. James crowd, they were there, they were watching, they were intrigued but they weren't a super vocal crowd so I think adding in those crashes and those bangs and those wallops from things like the, the baking trays and the sticks and the chairs and the ladders really helped and I think this match in front of a more vocal crowd, I think it might have made things even more exciting. But I think you can probably say that about any of the matches from last weekend. And it's not like it was an empty village hall. I think people were shy to really vocalise themselves. And I know you were trying your hardest to get them involved. You were always trying to get them on side. You started off by getting them to chant FSW. They were doing it throughout the match. But then as the match kind of progressed and you were getting your ass kicked a little bit by Mitch Bash, you couldn't exactly kind of look and stand up and start clapping your hands again. And that's where there was a, a little bit down. But I don't think that's anything to do with you or the match because you kept them intrigued. They weren't sitting there talking between each other, sharing jokes and, and whatnot. They were watching the match. They just didn't know that they could jump up and scream and shout and, and go wild and I think maybe next time that we go to Sutton St. James and we get the fans back again I think they'll be a bit more I don't know a bit more vocal a bit more fun a bit more kind of welcoming to this kind of falling star wrestling product but I don't think it was a bad thing and you know you can only work with the audience that you've got and I thought the match got a good reaction and those cool ladder spots got the correct kind of oohs and ahs that you want from that type of match. And I'm sure that's what you were going for, wasn't it, Jim? That kind of like, you hit a big move, you hear a big crash, you want people to go, oh, that looked like it hurt. But then you on the floor screaming in pain going, oh, that's pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I, unfortunately, I did suffer a bit of an injury, but that was nothing to do with any weapons. That was just a bit of an accident. When I hit the spear, I jacked my knee on the mat a little bit and it sort of blew up over the, the following couple of days. I was quite sore with it on Sunday. Uh, Monday, yesterday, it's, all, it's not been too bad. Today, it seems to be getting better. So I think I'll be fine. Accidents happen. But yeah, when you're using toys like that, you're obviously a lot more uh, susceptible to accidents. You are right. When you're doing a hardcore match in front of a bunch of people who don't really know why we're using these weapons, they don't know what's going on. People will think, well, if you do a hardcore match, just fucking go for it. Tax, blood, the fucking lot, razor wire, stick a spool of barbed wire up your arsehole like no, well, it's pots and pans hardcore. It's just, it's just something different. It's not. It doesn't need to be fucking murder, death, kill. It can just be a little bit of fun. That was the point of the match. And I think we we did all right. It was a slow match, slow paced match. But at the end of the day, when you're getting fucking hit with weapons, you're not going to be getting up and bumping and feeding, are you? You know what I mean? You're getting hit with big leady items you have to put a tiny bit of realism into it and once the weapons come into play and you take that first bump on a ladder or you get hit with that chair you know you're not going to be bumping and feeding that's it then you're in cell mode and the crowd do need to be involved in it to a certain aspect to create that drama if that match was in front of a more susceptible crowd it would have been better because 
the crowd are the ones who create the drama as much as we are. They need to be on board with it. And it would have helped if they were on board with it a little bit more. The effort was there. We tried to do that on that side of things. You know me, I never stop getting on that crowd. I'm always on them. But even with my level of, of crowd interaction and Mitch's as well, it was okay. But yeah, we could have done with a bit more. But again, they just probably didn't know what they were looking at. It took them a little while to understand that the concept of it. And no one got hurt. And it was different variety. Variety is the spice of life. There was no other match like that on the card. And good, because that's that was our spot. And I think we did okay. Yeah, and I think variety is something that we've started to really do pretty well here at Falling Star Wrestling. And thinking back to this card right about now, we start off with Matt and Ollie. They've got their own little story going on. Then you've got the tag team match after that. That's different from the first match. Then they've got the pure competition, sort of high-flying affair between Jack and Johnny. Then you've got this hardcore match. And then what goes on after that is different. And then the main event is even more different to that as well. So I think in the variety corner, we are doing, as we always say, we are a circus we're throwing out the the chimpanzees and the elephants then we're going to the jugglers then we're going to the clowns then we're going to go to the trapeze artists then we'll go to the fire eaters and the people that swallow swords and then you've got the acrobats to to finish things off with a bit of flair like the variety was definitely there and you'd like to think that somebody or everybody in the audience that night watched something that they are really entertained by they probably weren't entertained by each and every little thing but at least there was probably something there that they could gleam onto, whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're there with your kids just kind of living vicariously through them, whether you're a hard, staunch wrestling fan. I'd like to think there was something there for each and every one. And I think that's the way you book shows, isn't it, Jim? Most definitely. That You know, variety is a spice of life. If I book you on the show and you're in a match, there's not going to be any match like yours on the card. So go out there and tell the best story you can with the position you've got and the type of match you've got and the particular story I want you to tell because there's not going to be anything like else like that on the card. And yeah, I stand by that. I think that's what works and people seem to enjoy it. And like I said, even though the noise and actual feedback wasn't there as much on the night as we might have liked on the socials and messages on Facebook and the kind comments, and they obviously did enjoy it. So we must be doing something right and must have done something right on that night. Indeed. Then we tried to mix things up a little bit. Myself and Crowley were next on the docket. We took that thing of like variety and what people hadn't seen before. We tried to incorporate it into our match and there was no need for pomp and circumstance here. Both Crowley and I, we were at ringside after the previous match. We were scheduled to have a match. So we were both there. Why wait? Crowley rolls into the ring. I immediately start on the offense. Kicks, stomps, forearms in the corner. I whip Crowley and it's switched. I hit the buckle in the corner, but I'm too fast for Crowley. I dodge out of the way and continue raining elbows and forearms in the corner. I try for the bulldog, but it was too early. Crowley just swats me away and then bundles me into the corner. He charges, but I put a boot and then uh, jump up to the second rope, land a leaping European uppercut, which takes the big man down, spotting my chance. I then finish off what I started earlier with the Bulldog. I'm only able to get the two count. I try and finish things off with a side effect, but both attempts were blocked by the Swamp Beast. A chop takes me into the corner and then Crowley crushes me with a leaping back elbow, which causes me to slump into the bottom buckle. Crowley spots the chance and tries to squash me in the corner with a cannonball, but I've still got enough about me to move out of the way with Crowley hung up in the ropes. This gives me a chance to catch my breath. I grab Crowley by the head, take 
take him across the ring into the opposite turnbuckle. Boom, the audience seemed to like this, so I do it again. On the third time, Crowley becomes wise and puts a stop to my doings and drops my left arm and shoulder across the top rope. With my recent shoulder issues, this wasn't exactly what I was wanting at this stage. The Swamp Beast then wraps my arm around the ropes and begins to work across my weakened shoulder. Any attempts I make to come back are stopped by Crowley as he just targets the shoulder, kicking me and stomping on my shoulder. I do fire back with rapid fire chops, but a single boot puts me back in my place. Seeing me prone, Crowley lines up the psycho knee shiver, but I've still got some wits about me. I spin out of the way and then hook in the side effect. Up and down we both go. I finally create some space between us, but it took a lot out of me though. We both start to get up at the count of seven. I start to lump Crowley with a series of forearms with the good arm until he just grabs my bad arm. But before he can render my arm useless, I force him to drop the arm with a shot. This forces his head down and uh, at the same time I smash him with the knee. A low drop kick is followed by a kick to the head and this stuns the beast and I try to end things right about now. I hit the code breaker, but Crowley just rolls too close to the rope. So the pinfall attempt wasn't counted. This was the best chance that I had in this match. So I resort to my backup plan. I tried to hoist the big man up onto my shoulders for the TKO, but my arm and shoulder is just still battered. So I switch arms and try to do it with the other arm, but Crowley spots the bad arm and starts attacking it. I'm then pulled into the grasp of the Swamp Beast and Crowley nails the deep six spinning back suplex, which absolutely rocks me. He crawls over for the pinfall. One, two. No, I just managed to kick out in time. The kick out that seemed to incense the beast as he just takes me into the corner and lays boot after boot after boot, just stomping and kicking me into oblivion. He's standing on my head. He's tracing his boot across my face. He's standing on my shoulder. The referee tries to control the psychopath Crowley, but he's just uncontrollable. More boots are giving and Crowley just looks absolutely psychotic. The referee has no other option but to disqualify Crowley and award me the winner of the match. And even though I won... I sure didn't look like the winner on this occasion. That's two matches now featuring the disaster artist. We both left the ring looking and feeling worse for wear. It wasn't a great night for singles action for me and Jimmy, even though I picked up the win. Jimmy, I don't know if you got to watch this match after having your match or whether you watched it back on video. But yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. I did watch it back. Yeah, do you know what? I really enjoyed it. And I'll tell you why I enjoyed it because it didn't seem to stop. Do you know what I mean? Like when I watched the match, you know, you thought it was 11 minutes long and sometimes you think, oh, it seemed, it seems longer than that. But the thing is, there wasn't any sort of walking and talking and circling. You guys started off hot and you didn't seem to stop. And I actually watched it twice because I thought, fucking hell, like these guys just didn't rest. And it was, I thought it was really well paced. There was a frantic energy to it. But not only was there a frantic energy to it, it wasn't like sloppy. I know Crowley's offense is, he, you know, is in tune and, and matches with his character. He's not going to be delivering perfect sort of strike slams and whatever. But there's a difference between your character be, being a brawler and then just uh, sloppy moves and, and just everything being sort of all arms and legs and flailing about and stuff. And that match didn't have this. It, it was very intense from start to finish didn't really let up again looked like a fight looked like you hated each other looked like you were trying to get some recompense for me because obviously you know i'd just been fucking murdered pretty much by his tag team partner you were angry by that angered annoyed a you knew that match was coming but again like 
we're not going to wait for this. We're just going to get stuck in. A lot of good moves, a lot of good spots. There was a, a lot of good things that made sense psychologically. The position and stuff was good. You know, you both have wrestled many, many times. You know each other's moves. You know each other well. It seemed to flow like water, but it looked like a scrap. And again, this is what we're talking about in terms of variety. The way the match started, the way the match ended, the way the match flowed, it was very different to the other singles matches that were on the card. It was heel babyface, but it wasn't the same kind of matches as Ollie's heel babyface uh, with Matt. It wasn't as clearly defined and it wasn't the same kind of match and you're not the same kind of wrestlers and you didn't try and do the same kind of shit. There wasn't rest holds in there and building things up that way. It was just an out and out brawl. You using your sort of technique and your wrestling skill and Crowley using his mass, his strikes and his big slams. And in the end, him losing his temper and it costing him the match. I thought it was really well thought out. Looked like a fight, looked incredibly intense, didn't stop. I don't know if you're breathing out your ass by the end of it, but I know I would have been. It was a good, again, just another example of how good I think we are just putting on different kinds of matches and giving people a different show and a different story with every match we put on. Every match is a different chapter and every chapter has got its own little sort of feel and unique quality to it. And I thought I really did actually enjoy it. I thought that the crowd were a bit cruel with it. They didn't tend to come up for bits that they should have done. And when I was backstage, I was thinking, Christ, it sounds like they're having a bit of a hard time. But then when I watched the match, I thought, fuck me, I think the crowd are being a bit unfair to this one because it's actually really good. Like, it's a shame that they weren't there a little bit more. Again, in front of another audience, I think that match would have got the, the sort of the feedback that it deserved. But you always sit there as a wrestler and think, maybe I should have done this. Maybe I could have gotten more there. Maybe I could have gotten more here. Maybe I could have done this. And it's like, yeah, you can. And I suppose it's good to be self-critical. But I think sometimes you just work with the cards you dealt. And that crowd, even though there was plenty of them, I think that's something they were wrestling fans. I think they enjoyed it. But I don't think they were wrestling fans and knew what they could and couldn't do and knew how involved they could or could not get. And I think that, that a lot of all of our matches really suffered because of that. Um, in terms of crowd interaction. But it wasn't lack of enjoyment. It was just the lack of knowledge in terms of what can they do as, as a wrestling crowd. So I, I thought you were having a tough time on the night because I was laying there trying to work out whether my fucking knee was still attached to my leg, listening to your match and backstage. But then when I watched it back yesterday, I said I watched it twice because like I, said, I just couldn't work out why it wasn't getting over more. I thought it was a really good match. Did, 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 how did you feel about it when you were doing it? I don't know. Like This match for me, it's, it's been really hard for me to decide what I really think about it. I know that the finish was quite flat, but I think it was planned that way. We were trying to be different. We were in a pretty difficult spot on the card. Like We could have decided to do like a clean finish, but we were squashed between a no DQ match and the main event, and we were trying to be different. So, I don't know. We wanted me to go over, but we wanted Crowley to kind of come out looking like an absolute psychopath, which I think we achieved that. So, I don't feel too bad about having a flat finish because I knew the guys in the main event were going to bring it up and actually send it home with an amazing match, but which we'll get to in a bit. But on the other hand, no matter where you are on the card or who I'm up against, I always try and have a good match regardless. And I think we managed to do a decent job with what we had, but when you don't get that crowd participation or the reaction that you're after, 
it makes you feel a little bit like you don't know how to do your job or you're not quite doing your job properly. It was a very difficult thing. It was a little bit like pulling teeth. I don't know whether you'd exhausted them with your hardcore antics or whether Johnny and Jack had just absolutely blown them out of the water. So no matter what we did, it just looked a bit like, okay, they're just having a bit of a fight. I don't know. So it, it sort of really makes you doubt yourself. But like, if you watch the match and thought that we were go, 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 that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to be a fight. We wanted to be a bit of a brawl. We wanted to throw a few moves in there. We didn't do a lot of kind of rope running spots or anything like that. We kind of wanted to do the arm selling stuff as well. That was a little bit different. And I quite like the sort of idea of the disaster artist going separately against each member of the NLP. And although on paper it was a draw, obviously Basher gets the win against you, I get the win against Crowley, the the optics that were, were shown that night of Jimmy, you getting knocked out by Basher and then me just getting my ass pummeled by Crowley, I think really speaks to who was the winner really. And I love wrestling Crowley. He's, so, he's got such a great mind and his character is just a monster and a psycho. And he doesn't care if he gets disqualified because to him, he walked out of that ring relatively unscathed. Whereas I, the quote unquote winner of the match, I could barely stand and almost re-injured my arm and shoulder again. So that's the kind of story that we were trying to tell of like the NLP may have lost this match and won the other match, but who's the real winners here? Like both guys walked out looking pretty good. And on the positive side of things, I think I was mostly happy with my strikes. I've been taking on criticism of people sort of watching my matches and going, oh, you can really tell you're calling spots when you're doing those strikes. So I think it was like, I was trying to make an effort of like making every strike land, making every every strike count and trying to really work on my selling because we were working on the left shoulder. So anytime I had to do anything with the left shoulder, I was just trying to make a massive point of it. Improvements can always be made across the board, but I just tried to sort of sell realistically with my arm injury and trying to think about that when trying to perform other moves. Like I do the side effect that only really uses my right arm. So that kind of makes sense. You've got the bulldog with the right arm. You've got the code breaker and stuff doesn't require both arms. But when I did hit it, I did land on my shoulder. So that's why I couldn't get the pin fall and it's just trying to think of all these sort of small intricate things that that matter for the match that probably people won't pick up on people might watch that match and just go yeah it was mostly sort of strikes and and, and a little bit of Crowley working over your shoulder but I'm trying to work from things from a psychological point of view and trying to be clever not overly clever and kind of overbook the match but just trying to make things a little more clever and um, on another positive side I was quite happy with the way I took the deep six because coming back from this shoulder injury and over the last couple of months I've actually not really taken any real meaningful or heavy bumps. So taking that move actually felt pretty good afterwards, as good as you can feel after taking a deep six. And I feel like now if I can take that bump, I can probably take any other bump and not really bitch out anymore because I've watched a few of my previous bumps and been a bit like, that looked a bit rough putting your leg down or not really committing to it. So I think that was a positive. I think with the weight loss, you you alluded to it there, Jimmy. It looked like we were going hard for 11 minutes. I didn't feel like I was blown out. I feel like with the weight loss, I've got a little bit more gas in the tank. That still needs work. Obviously, I was going up against a larger opponent, so there wasn't a great deal of rope running or those big high-impact moves, but I thought... We tried to tell a cohesive story and uh, tried to tell a few stories throughout the match, you know, starting off hot, me trying to get retribution, as you mentioned there, seeing your head being splattered by Basher, then with the arm injury stuff, did it work? I don't know. We'll never know. Watching it back, 
it looked all right. It wasn't horrid, <laughs> but I think that's down to working with Crowley because he's just so good with his character and psychology and the moves and stuff like that. So to sum it all up, I thought it was all right. I was chuffed with the side effect. It came in the right place and that was a good spot by Crowley. I think he's got a great mind for timing in the middle of the ring. If there was anything, there was probably two points in that match that probably the crowd actually reacted to things and it was that side effect. So I think they were ready to pop because Crowley had just been beating me down boom, hit the side effect. I think they popped a little bit for that. And then when I kicked out the deep six as well, I think there was a little bit, you know, it was maybe a grumble, I don't know, but I think they seemed to pop a little bit for that. So I guess maybe those particular moves were in the right spot and maybe in front of a crowd that were ready to go wild, it would have got a bigger pop, but it was what it was. And that's... that's but but again, just before we go to the next match, like if you think about it, if they're not a wrestling crowd and they haven't really, they, they don't really get the the concept of wrestling and how things can work and the fact that really it's a show and we're telling stories and that sort of stuff. They probably were a little bit confused by the hot start. They didn't maybe didn't know a lot of the people that a match was going on until maybe a couple of minutes into it and then there's a match going on. They might not have got the, the DQ finish straight away because maybe they've never seen a DQ finish before. I'm not saying that these were bad decisions in front of a, a Westlin or, or any of our sort of Norfolk crowds. Um, with with fans who were wrestling savvy, um, they 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 would have understood it, and they probably would have been a bit more on board. But maybe just a few things like that 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 might have taken them out of it just for a second before they realised what was going on, and then they just settled down to watch it. But I really don't think looking at that match, I don't think you could have done much more. And like you say, you're both talented guys. You both got very defined characters, and I don't think you can have a bad match with each other. I just think that maybe you're a victim of the fact we just had a hardcore match. But then again, they weren't particularly up in that. It wasn't like they were going crazy and all of a sudden they were flat. They were pretty, pretty flat most of the night and they came up for certain bits. But I don't think you got any worse reaction than anyone else did. I think it was just a new crowd learning, watching and absorbing what we were doing. And I think that next time when we go back, they'll probably be louder because they'll get the idea of it, you know? Yeah, I really hope so because I really liked performing in that village hall. I thought it was really good. It kind of reminded me of like a hybrid between places like Heacham and also West Lynn. We had the lower ceiling so we couldn't do all our crazy high moves but then it had that sort of intimacy of like a Heacham and things like that and everybody seemed really nice. The the people that put on the show and ran the venue and stuff were super nice and they had tea and coffee and burgers and things like that and it's great to go to a venue that are going to cater to our fans as well as the wrestlers as well, isn't it? But I'll tell you what, there was a thing that they didn't have, which, again, I genuinely, I'm not taking the piss, I genuinely think makes the crowd quiet. And the one thing that the venue didn't have was booze. When people are getting pissed up, they tend to get a bit louder. And that's, that. now I know it sounds, and I'm genuinely not taking the piss, Maybe if they'd have sold a few tinnies, we might have got a bit more Larry, you know, made a bit more noise. So I might suggest that to them next time. Make sure you bring the fucking booze or we will. <laughs> we'll have to do like a ticket bundle to the show. It's like buy a ticket for 12 quid or buy a ticket and get a four pack for 15 quid. Really get yeah, rolled up yeah, and yeah, ready yeah. to go. And, I, and I'll find the cheapest, strongest lager I can. <laughs> so that fucking smash. Special brew. Yeah, exactly. So they're having hallucinations and puking up by the end of it. I'll make my own beer at home. I'll put, I'll put a few fucking magic mushrooms in it as well. So they think this is dragon. <laughs> Righty-ho. Uh, you ready for the main event, Jim? Let's go. 
Cool, it's time for the main event of the evening. Danny announces that this is a tag team match, but first, to come down to the ring alone is the Falling Star Wrestling champion, Callie Gray. Callie quickly jumps into the ring, grabs the microphone and calls on the audience. Callie says that he put out an open challenge before the event, and he says that two people have taken him up on the challenge. And before Callie finds out who's going to have his back... He needs to know who he's going up against. First to come down to the ring is the playmaker, Tommy Lawrence. The other person that wants to challenge Callie Gray is the current Falling Star Wrestling Limitless Champion, Furio. Callie says that he has some backup for tonight, and that surprise is the one and only Spring Heel Jack Landers, who rushes down to the ring to get involved in the show once again. When the match finally gets underway, the pair of champions get in the ring together. We've got Furio going up against Callie Gray, the champs lock up. Furo takes the head. He's sent off. And then after sleeping and leaping, Callie lands a running back elbow. Furio evades the attack in the corner and Callie nails a whisper in the wind. Furio looks to be taken off of his game and tags in his partner for the evening, Tommy Lawrence. Tommy wants to face Jack, so Landers is tagged into the match. A cheeky kick by Lawrence helps him gain control, but Landers shows us just how spring-heeled he actually is with a series of leaps and then that drop kick to the face of Tommy. This is followed up by a hard knife edge chop in the corner. The Irish whip is switched and Jack goes up and over with the backflip. Tommy then charges in but is caught with the power slam. It could all be over here, but no. Jack just gets the two count. Callie is brought into the fold and the pair of Callie and Landers do some really nice double team moves. Kick to the spine, foot stomp by Callie and then the running shooting star by Jack. Super, super smooth stuff. Jack goes up to the top as Callie looks to hook in the cemetery driver, but Furio causes the distraction. Furio gets a shot in the face for his troubles, but this allows Tommy a second to get back into things. A shot to Callie, and then Tommy catches Landers, hangs him up on the top rope, and then fires back with a snap sling blade. Tommy and Furio are now in control of this match. Landers is being controlled by Furio and Lawrence. Jack tries to make a comeback and get over to his corner to tag in Callie, but the numbers game and the ring control of Tommy and Furio is just too much. Tommy lands a massive leaping dropkick in the corner. Jack's head is taken off. It wasn't enough to get the win, but it's all punishment being dished out on a man that's already wrestled once in this very show. Furio knocks Callie off the apron, which pisses off the champion, so Callie tries to get back into the ring to get some retribution, but as there was no tag made, the referee is forced to hold Callie back. This backfires on the team, as this allows Tommy and Furio to work over Jack in the corner some more. An assisted Uranagi takes Landers down once again then the split leg moonsault also causes more damage but Landers remains in the game. Jack is bundled into the corner as the opposition try to use the numbers gain against him. First Furio runs into a boot. Tommy charges into an elbow. Both men are stunned. Landers leaps off the second rope and nails both Tommy and Furio with a double leaping DDT. Fantastic. Callie is on the apron desperate to try and get that tag which he eventually does and comes in like a house on fire. Furio gets the forearm. Same for Tommy. German suplex to Furio. Same to Tommy. Callie works over both men in opposite corners with running kicks. And then Lawrence is taken down with that cool gut wrench flapjack thingy. But Furio makes sure that the match continues and breaks up the cover. In comes Jack. Both he and Furio just smash into each other at the same time and both crumble down to the floor. The referee starts the count with all four men inside the ring. Then after 
after the count of six, a strikeathon ensues, headbutts, forearms, chops, and everything in between as the four lump each other, with Cali coming out on top with a headbutt to Tommy, and then the step up Guri to Furio. Tommy sneaks up behind and lands a spin kick on Cali Gray, but then Landers drop kicks the life out of Tommy. While Jack is down, Furio hits that short Rana on Jack Landers. Then the two champions face off again, Furio trying to gain the win with a rope assisted swinging DDT, but it's stopped by Cali. Meanwhile, Tommy steps in and lands a massive blue thunder bomb on Cali Gray for the near fall. It's chaos and bedlam right about now, and the referee has no idea who is legal or not, but by the looks of it, it's Cali and Tommy. Furio tries to kick the head and misses, so Tommy steps in and tempts the super kick, but accidentally hits Furio right in the face. Tommy then gets rocked with the Michinoku driver, and then in comes Jack with the assist. Cali and Jack both work over Tommy in the corner with stereo knees, and then Tommy is hoisted up for the cemetery driver, while Jack flies off the second with the spike. This murders Tommy, and he is not able to answer the referee's count of three. The team of Cali Gray and Jack Landers win this tag team match main event at Sutton St. James. Post-match, after much celebration, Cali grabs the microphone and tells the audience that it's been a privilege to perform in front of a new crowd, and it's even better doing it teaming up with Jack Landers. After a short embrace, Jack rocks Cali with a clothesline out of nowhere, stuns the audience, stuns everyone, and punctuates it by saying that friendships don't mean as much as the falling star wrestling title. Jack grabs the belt and holds it up high over Cali Gray. Jimmy, what on earth happened in this match and what happened at the end? Tell me your thoughts. Everything happened in that match. There was lots of thrills, lots of spills, lots of excitement. The first half was barely not generic, but normal tag team match, but then became a more modern tag team match. Lots of spots, lots of moves, lots of double teams, lots of kicks, lots of strikes, of striked offs, everything you could possibly want from a main event. I thought it worked well having Cali come out first, the two heels come out and stand in the aisle way like fucking Billy Big Bollocks and then get in the ring. And then Jack, who we've seen earlier on, the crowd already like. A good way to get a little bit of an extra lift in a crowd that weren't hugely vocal, but all of a sudden they had someone to care about because they'd already seen him earlier on and they liked him. The idea being, obviously, have a really good main event, which they did. I think that a tag matches are difficult, and I think that we've realized that after three years of tagging now that to get in there and just pull off an amazing tag match is hard work, especially when you're trying to drill tag psychology in and really sort of get that excitement that you can generate by having four people in the ring. I think they did that. I thought there were some bits that are a bit messy, but they're not they're not tag teams. It was a tag team match, but it was four very talented individuals put together to perform a tag team match and they did an extremely good job considering they're not long-time tag teams and to be an efficient decent tag team you have to know each other well you have to know each other's moves you have to be on the same page and as much as these guys know each other they know each other as opponents not tag team partners but it was still very exciting really good match but the key the end as Jack Lander's gone bad as Jack Lander's gone to the dark side he hit Cali Gray he took him out Everyone's fan favorite, Jack, up until that point, was the blue-eyed boy. What is he doing? Now, my take on this, looking at it from my perspective, is I don't think Jack's a bad guy. 
I just think Jack is being sick of seen as the total white meat good guy. He's got a lot to offer. And I think he's realised that by being such a good guy, that might have cost him a few wins here and there. He could have hit Cali with a chair. He could have kicked his teeth out. He could have set him on fire. He could have beaten him about the head with a baseball bat. But he clotheslined him and he grabbed the belt and he made a statement. He didn't kick him when he was down. He didn't batter him. He even told Cali to his face that he was his best friend. But the telling thing that Jack said is as much as you know, our friendship means, this title means more to me because he's a hungry young man. He's a hungry young wrestler and he's a hungry young athlete. So I don't think he's got the dark side. I don't think he's Jaden Scar who would steal your wallet and kill your granny. He's not bad to the bone. I just think that he wants to let Callie know that I love you to pieces, but I want your fucking belt. Actually, I want this belt and you happen to have it. Whether you're my best friend, whether you're my brother, here's a little reminder of what I'm willing to do to get it. I think if people are saying Jack Landers has turned heel and he's a bad guy, no, not really. I don't think so. I think that he's just letting Callie know and letting the FSW audience know that Actually, this belt means a hell of a lot to me, and I don't mind taking one of my best friends out to get it. That's my take on it. We'll see how things go, and we'll see what Jack Landers says on August the 12th. I know he's planning to be at West Lynn to get out in front of people and explain his actions, but I don't think that, that we've got a complete and utter uh, you know, devil in, in, in Jack Landers. I just think we've got someone who's really hungry and doesn't want to be pushed aside and doesn't want to be forgotten and wants to remind Callie that the FSW championship means more to him than anything at this moment. So, you know, hit him with a clothesline. That's not a particularly nice thing to do to someone when they're not expecting it, but he could have done a hell of a lot worse. And that's, that's, I suppose that's my take on the whole affair. That's a fair assessment. I guess before I get onto talking about Jack and Callie and whether this was a heel turn or not, I'll give my thoughts on the match and... I really like the match. Obviously, I've got a soft spot for tag team wrestling, and I thought all four guys really put a lot into the match to make it exciting and also cohesive. They didn't forget about those tag team staples either, though, which was nice. They did some moody stuff. I liked that with Tommy and Furio. They were cheating. That really got the crowd involved, and that helped really build up to that hot tag, which is designed to get a good pop, and it did just that. So well done, guys. And as, as I mentioned in the match review for Johnny Storm and Jack Landers, Jack choosing his moves wisely was such a smart thing to do. Here you're seeing him pull off like the shooting star press and the power slam, whereas earlier on he nailed moves like the handspring stunner and the pump handle driver earlier on in the evening. Uh, the one thing I was a little bit confused by was the way that the match was set up. I don't know if there was a plan for like Tommy and Furo to come out and make it look like it was going to be a triple threat challenge against Cali, you know, going up against all odds, then have there the was, last minute saved by up. Jack. There but... was the balls up. Yeah, sorry. I'll, I'll, we'll set the record straight with that now. It shouldn't have been announced as a tag match. It was an open challenge for Cali Gray. And what was meant to happen is Tommy and Furo were meant to come out and make it look like that they were going to go for a two on one type thing bit of a handicap deal to beat the living dog shit out of him so that Tommy could take the title easily. And Jack was meant to come out and go, no, fuck you, let's have a tag. But it didn't quite work out that way, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it seemed to sort of go a little bit out of the window. But I think... 
They covered it well, though. It felt like it was a little bit out of order and not quite as well executed as it probably could be. But I think Cali Gray, knowing he went out there and heard that Danny announced it as a tag team match, I think he knew he had to kind of switch it about a little bit and said, like, I've got a partner for tonight. And I know also know that I've got two people challenging me. And I think that really covered it. Like people watching it would probably think, OK, I thought it was an open challenge, but maybe it's a tag team match now. But obviously we know that it was meant to be another way and they did it the other way. I think they covered it pretty well. And I don't think that it really mattered too much that it was announced as a tag team match because the tag team match happened and it was a pretty good tag team match. Now, I don't know how I feel with Jack hitting that clothesline at the end on Cali and holding the belt over him, you know, in one mind. I think it's going to add some real freshness to this whole Jack and Cali saga. The first match that they had back in Heacham in, what was it, 2018, 2019, it was Cali as the heel. Then they had match number two at Lynn Sport. And it was Cali kind of leaning, but also basically a babyface at this point. Then they had match number three again at Heacham. That was just pure, even Steven, babyface, babyface match. So if they're going to have match number four between the two, it's going to change it up a little bit. We're going to see Jack possibly lean a little bit to the dark side. Maybe. I don't know. But I think the only reason I'm not 100% on board with it, because I think Jack is just such a great baby face. And this isn't like a full heel turn. I don't know. He'll address the people on August 12th at West Lynn. If not, it maybe could damage him a little bit. But of course, that remains to be seen. He's got to address the crowd. He's got to tell people why he did that. He's got to address the audience. We can't speculate because we don't know what's going on in the mind of Jack Landers. We can only guess and offer opinions. And that's all they are. And everybody can have opinions. And ours are as good as the rest. But I think maybe he was just saying to Callie, watch your back, mate. Yeah, we are friends. But you've got something that a lot of people here at Falling Star Wrestling really, really cover. And I covet it the most of all. And you're holding that belt. And while you hold that belt, let's just say we're not the best of friends. And I guess we'll leave it there. And what I liked about this whole segment is that it's focusing on characters and development between those characters. And that sort of, I guess we could call it possible friendship between Jack and Callie. Landers, he's been rescuing Callie for the past couple of weeks. You know, Jaden Scar's been mounting his attacks. And now it seems like Jack is kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm done saving you, Callie. You can do it by yourself. Friendship over. Maybe it's time for me to go get really serious. If I want to get that Falling Star Wrestling title and prove to myself and to my family and to my friends and to the fans that I can be the number one guy and carry Falling Star Wrestling on my shoulders, maybe I need to put that friendship to one side and out of any Anybody in the Falling Star Wrestling roster right about now, aside from Cali, because he is the current Falling Star Wrestling champion, the person that I can see carrying that belt and really adding prestige to it is definitely Jack Landers. But I don't know. He's, he's going to lean. Is he going to be in somewhere in between? Is he babyface? Is he heel? I don't know. That remains to be seen. There's questions flying about. There's rumors circulating. And that's cool. That just goes to prove that you can't miss a Falling Star Wrestling show because no matter where you are in the county, whether it's Norfolk, Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire, whatever, the stories still go on. They still change. They still develop. And they still matter, which is the main thing for us to keep them interesting, keep the audience guessing and engaged and wondering what's going to happen next. Because you just never know, do you, Jimmy Starr? You never know. You never know. You never know. And also you're forgetting one very key component there, Jaden Scar. I mean, the at the last Westlin, Jaden Scar came back with a huge beef with Callie Gray blaming him for his injury, blaming him for, for, for being stuck at home and not being able to, to 
care for his family, blaming him for a lot of stuff, which obviously wasn't Callie's fault. And everyone knows that Jaden Scar is the ultimate bastard. And I think that if I'm Callie Ray, I'm probably looking at Jaden Scar and thinking he's next in line after what he did to me. If you remember at West Lynn backstage, we were all sat around Callie Gray concerned because he had a concussion due to what Jaden Scar did to him. He was rocked. He was seen double. He, he, he was not a well man. So you're looking at Kelly Gray and thinking, well, he's probably going to make his next target, Jaden Scar. And Jack might have just given him that clothesline just to remind him, just don't forget about me. I am here and I'm here to take your title. I'm here to be the best. I'm an elite athlete. I'm the best in falling star wrestling. And I think I should be the one to challenge for that title. And then you've got Jaden Scar, who believes, very much believes that he's entitled to a title shot because he, he thinks he was cheated out of his, his last match over in Weston due to the fact that he wrestled most of it injured. There's three guys there who have, who, who well, two of them who are laying claim to, to having first dibs on a title shot. I just think that Jack Landers was making a statement and saying, don't look at Jaden, look at me. And Caddy Gray's got a decision to make. Does he take one of them on? Does he take... Both of them on. How does Cali Gray, who has been probably uh, the most dynamic falling star wrestling champion of out of all of us, out of all of the champions that falling star wrestling have ever had, he has defended the title the most times against the most varied opponents and some of the best wrestlers in the country. He's beaten them. He's wrestled harder. He's wrestled longer matches, and he's defended that title every single time. And he's beaten everyone. He's pretty much beaten everyone, and it's now getting to the point where. I think Cali Gray is going to come up against his ultimate test and it'll be very interesting to see where the story goes with Jack, Jaden and Cali. I'm looking forward to it personally. We've got Westling coming up on August the 12th. Me and you get our, well, hopefully from the video that Rashwood left on our, on the Fallen Star Wrestling Facebook, looks like he's sunning himself up in Spain at the moment and having a right royal laugh, drinking a pina colada. Seems like he might be around might be about for Westland, so me and you might get a title shot. We might finally get to have our tag team title match that we've been waiting a very long time for. Rashford's been evading us for far too long now, so it'd be great to get the sound in the ring because I personally, BBC, do not want to win the match by forfeit. I want to fight these guys, and I know you do too, and I know that me and you together as a unit, we have not been tag team champions yet. We're the only tag team really in Fallen Star Wrestling, the only long-standing tag team in Fallen Star Wrestling who haven't tasted that Fallen Star Wrestling tag team gold jet between us. I think we deserve it. We've trained hard for it. We've both lost tons of weight. We're both working out really hard. We're both trying to get better. And I think we're the best we ever have been. And as a cohesive unit and as a tag team, I don't think there's a tag team out there better than us at the moment. So August 12th, guys, you've got to be there for West Lynn. And not just to see what Jack Landers says, has got to say about his actions, but to also see the match, the tag team match that's been months and months in the waiting now, the tag team match that me and PVC have had to jump through hoops for. We've had to scratch, claw, bollock and bite our way to this opportunity. It looks like it's finally going to happen on August the 12th. The sound versus the disaster rise tag team title match. Guys, you're not going to want to miss this one. And it's like all Fallen Star Wrestling shows. You never know what's around the corner. Be there or be fucking square. 
Come on, ladies and gents, don't be a square. Come along and have a fun, action-packed Saturday night in Kings Lynn. Falling Star Wrestling presents Fight Night at the Wesleyan Sports and Social Club on the 12th of August. Jimmy and I look to pick up our first taste of Tag Team Gold. Well, that's if George Rashwood of The Sound decides to show his face. You'll find out the same time as we will, and I know for a fact Rashwood is doing this on purpose just to wind us up. And you know what? Bravo, George, you've gotten under my skin. But I dare you, I just dare you, double dare you to show up. Sorry, sorry, getting a little excited there. Also, Jack Landers has some explaining to do. Has Jack turned to the dark side? Why did he clothesline Callie Gray? What's going through Jack's mind? Where did I leave my keys? All questions will be answered on August 12th. Doors, 6.30, showtime, 7.30. Then, just two weeks after fight night, we're bringing the heavy artillery when we present Walsoken Warfare. Saturday, 26th of August at the Walsoken Village Hall. It's not too far from where I grew up, so I want Walsoken to give it everything they've got. For all information, times, dates, and prices, please visit Falling Star Wrestling on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Falling Star Wrestling. Like, share, comment, and start a discussion. Your opinion matters. All right, that just about wraps things up. Thank you so much for listening to the Falling Star Wrestling podcast today. We appreciate you. Thanks to Jimmy for being a gracious co-host. I've been PVC, and we'll see you on August 12th for our Westland show. But if you missed that, well, we'll catch you next time here for another edition of the Falling Star Wrestling Podcast. Bye-bye. <laughs>